So the book of Shoftim, going to be seven verses. So we're going to be in Shoftim chapter 12. We're going to do verses one through seven. And we're actually going to be using Shoftim as a catapult into talking a little bit about Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, which is happening later on this week. Excuse me, later on next week. This week isn't done yet. So next week, Wednesday. So as we get into the book of Shoftim, we always have to remember that there is a structure in the book of Shoftim where Israel is at peace. They become apathetic towards God. They sin against him. God allows oppression to take place. And then they're judged. And then deliverance comes once again. They find peace. And then the whole cycle starts over again. We always remember as we come forward, and I know this gets repetitious, but it is repetition that helps us to remember, right? And we, we always have to remember that just because Israel did it, did it doesn't make them evil, bad, or wicked. Just as when we mess up, it doesn't make us evil, bad, or wicked. It just means we're human. We mess up, and we need deliverance from Adonai, and we need his help to continue forward. So last time we were together, we learned about Jephthah, the eighth judge. But before that, we were privy to the idea that seven nations have come in, and they've attacked Israel during this time of the judges. We have the nation of Egypt, we have the Amorim, the, uh, the Ammon, the Pilishtims, the Zidon, Amalek, and Ma'on. Now, these seven nations attacked in seven different times when Israel was not following Adonai, and we've had seven judges that we went through as well so far. We have Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, and then last week we learned about Jephthah. So we went over the fact that they had seven, seven judges prior, which seven is the number for completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings. So at this point, Adonai says, okay, let's see what's going to happen, guys. Are you going to continue to follow after me? Are you going to turn a new leaf, or are things going to get worse? Unfortunately, things get worse. And Jephthah is a turning point, because Jephthah is going to lead the way where eventually we're going to start to learn about judges, and we're not even going to learn about good deeds that are being done, to the fact where we're going to end up with the judge of Samson. Not the best example. Jephthah is who we learned about last time. So just to recap Jephthah, so Yiftach is his Hebrew name. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute, and he was kicked out from his inheritance by his people because of that fact. So he came from the area of Gilead. They said, you're the son of a prostitute. We don't want you here. You need to leave. He says, fine, I'm going to leave. And he goes and he forms a band of ruffians or miscreants. And they go around and they, they pillage and they do some pretty bad things. But now Ammon comes along. Ammon comes along and attacks the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. And it's at this point that the, the leaders of Gilead call out to him and they say, we need you to come and help us. We need you to come rescue us because you are a strong, mighty man. No one's going to mess with you. And he says, fine, I'll come and I'll, and I'll, I'll rescue you, but you have to uh, give me some stipulations here and you have to follow after me and make me your leader. And they're like, fine, we can do that. So he comes together and with his band of merry men, along with the tribe of Manasseh and Gad, they defeat the Amorites and push them out of the land. However, the story doesn't quite end there because before the battle even begins, we see that Jephthah goes before Adonai and he says, Adonai, only you can deliver us. Ooh, that's good. That's absolutely correct. Only you can deliver us. And he says, and because of that, the first thing that steps out of my house, I will give to you as a burnt offering. Fortunately, we hear that as he returns home after this great victory from Adonai, the first thing to come in to greet him out of his door, doorway of his house is his daughter. 
We're never really fully told in Scripture if he does offer up as a burnt sacrifice. The majority of rabbis point to the fact that he probably did. Because remember, this is the time where Israel did what was right in their own eyes. It seemed like the right thing to do. Jephthah's story, unfortunately, doesn't end here. It continues. So in chapter 12 of Judges, of Shoftim, verse 1 we read, The men of Ephraim assembled, crossed into Siphon, and said to Yiftach, Why didn't you call us to go with you when you went over to fight the people of Ammon? We're ready to burn your house down with you in it. What is happening here? Ephraim, all of a sudden, the people of Ephraim come along and they're like, hey, we're kind of mad that you didn't call us to risk our lives to join in your war. How dare you? Verse 2. Now Yiftach, or Jephthah, answered, when my people and I were in serious dispute with the people of Ammon, I called to you, and you didn't rescue me from their power. When I saw that you weren't rescuing me, I put my own hands, my life in my own hands, and went over to attack the people of Ammon, and Adonai gave them over into my power. So why have you come up here today to fight me? So quick understanding of what's going on here. So Ephraim is the largest tribe, largest tribe in Israel. They have the most people, and we're going to find out that's because of Adonai. He has blessed them. And they had gotten to a point where they believed that they were the best thing since sliced bread. How dare you not call us to be involved in this war? Don't you know that we have the power to save? How dare you challenge our authority as leadership? It's a pretty bad attitude. Pretty bad. It's interesting, when we look at the Ralbag, that's an abbreviation for Rabbi Levi ben Gershon. And he says this, the root of the tragedy, this tragedy that's about to take place here in Judges, was a clash of egos. Jephthah was justifiably angry that Ephraim, or the leaders of Ephraim, showed him no gratitude for risking his life to save them from the nation of Ammon. Now Ephraim accused Jephthah of arrogance and not calling upon others to join the battle. How dare you not allow us to join the battle so that we might obtain some of the glory from the win? So last time we were together, we learned about the ego of Jephthah. I will offer up whatever comes out through my door if you give me the victory. This time around, we're going to learn the rest of the story, and we're going to learn about the ego of Ephraim, because this isn't the first time an issue has happened, and it's not the last time in biblical history, that Ephraim will cause a problem. So the progress of Ephraim's ego. Now, historically, the tribe of Ephraim has started problems within the tribes in general. And we see this quite often in life. There's always that one black sheep in the family. You know, the whole family, everyone looks on, and the world's like, dude, that's an awesome put-together family. Except for Uncle Harry. Hi, Harry. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a miscreant. You know, he's always getting us in trouble, making everyone look down upon us because everything he does. But we're going to see through this whole progress, yes, every, every family may have a black sheep, but oftentimes the black sheep shine in the end. The black sheeps tend to go against the flow, and in the end, they end up having sometimes the greatest redemption. 
We are going to see that with Ephraim eventually, eventually in, in the Acharit Chayim. However, we're not going to see it this week, unfortunately. So, how did this all start off? It starts off really good. So, in the beginning, in the book of Bereshit, we see that Ephraim is promised to be blessed above his brother Manasseh. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are the brothers of Yosef, of Joseph. And Joseph is, he's blessed via his sons. So, their sons are kind of coming in, and so we have two tribes representing one tribe. So, turn with me to Bereshit or Genesis, chapter 48, verses 13 through 20. It's going to be found on page 55. And here's what we read, starting in verse 13. Then Yosef took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel, his father's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. But Israel put out his right hand and laid it on the head of the younger one, Ephraim, Ephraim and put his left hand on the head of Manasseh. He intentionally crossed his hands, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Yosef, the God in whom, whom's presence my father Abraham and Yitzhak lived, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm. Bless these boys. May they remember who I am and what I stand for, and likewise my father Abraham and Yitzhak, who they were and what they stood for, and may they grow into teeming multitudes on the earth. So at this point, we're going to pause. Remember, just a little reminder here, the right hand is the hand of blessing. It is the hand of strength and power and leadership. The left hand is, okay, you're kind of second place, but hey, you're still there. So Joseph brings his, his two sons to him, and the oldest is on the right hand would be the right hand side which would be Joseph's left hand side and the youngest is on the other side and then uh, uh, excuse me uh, Yaakov takes his hands and he switches them over and blesses them crossways so the youngest one is getting the first blessing the primary blessing the strong blessing while the younger one is still receiving a blessing but it's a little less in magnitude so when Joseph saw that his father was laying his right hand on Ephraim's hand it displeased him and he lifted up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and placed it upon Manasseh's head. Yosef said to his father, Don't do it that way, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father said, refused and said, I know that, my son. I know it. He too will become a people and he too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be a greater than he is, and his descendants will grow into many nations. Then he added this blessing on them that day. Israel will speak to you in their own blessings by saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And this is true. We do say this blessing on, on, on a Rev Shabbat, on Friday night when we welcome in the Shabbat. We bless our sons in a way that they may be like Ephraim and Manasseh, that they may grow and be an influence in the world. So this blessing that he places upon them does not come to pass very quickly. It takes a little time. But once they're in the land, we'll see that Ephraim will actually become so numerous. There'll be so many of them that they have an original designation. They're going to come to Joshua, and they're going to say, hey, we're going into the land, we are here, and there are too many of us to fit into this little spot that we've been given. Can we have an additional spot on the other side of the Jordan? 
And, and Joshua says, you know what? You're absolutely right. There are a ton of you guys. You've been blessed by God. Absolutely, we'll give you a second spot. This second spot is going to come to play in a little bit because we're going to see that there's two territories of Ephraim, one on, one on the west side of the Jordan River and one on the east side. And the west sideites tend to look down on the east sideites. It's kind of like in our cities we see that too. We have red line districts, unfortunately, and those on one side look down on the, those on the other side. And that's what's going to happen here too, eventually where the Ephraimites who live directly in the land of Israel will look down on those around them, as well as their very own kinsmen who are just on the other side of the Jordan River. So back to Ephraim's progress. So his ego, he was promised to be blessed above Manasseh. Number two, God made Ephraim the head of the western three tribes in the formation in the wilderness. So we have the tabernacle. And on the west side, we have the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin all together. And Adonai makes Ephraim the head. So any time in life when we are blessed by God, we do need to be careful. We need to take stock anytime Adonai has raised us up, especially as leaders, because we do not have the right to look down upon the people. And we have to work hard to not do so, to make sure that we love God and we love the people he's put in our charge. But apparently these two things had caused Ephraim in their own mind's eye to think more highly of themselves than they should have, which led to some bad choices. Choice number one, they're, going about, they're about to start a civil war with Jephthah. There's been a great deliverance by God. They've been delivered from the Amorites. Ammonites, excuse me. And now they're about to go to war with one another within their own boundaries. But it gets worse. Later on in history, as the kingship is established, there are three kings in. So they have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Solomon's son Rehoboam comes to the kingship, makes a bad choice. And as a result, the tribe of Ephraim stands up with a man named Rehoboam, son of Nebat. And he will challenge them. Civil war will break out once again, and this time the kingdom's divided. As we know, as history progresses, the northern kingdom eventually will be exiled away by the Assyrians. Ultimately, in time, a few hundred years later, the southern kingdom will also be exiled by the Babylonians. There are other cases, but I don't want to get on Ephraim's case, because I don't want to focus on the bad things. I want to focus on the fact that we've all fallen short. We've all made mistakes, but that there's still grace and love from our Father that's available to us. So continuing on with our chapter here, verse 4, Then Yiftak gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. So the civil war has begun. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they were saying, You Gileadite men who live in Ephraim and Manasseh have deserted Ephraim. The complete Jewish body, that is, a, that is a word salad there in the complete Jewish Bible. I found a translation that actually helps us a little bit better. And in this other translation, it says it like this. So Jephthah assembled all the men of Gilead and warred against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, for even the rabble in Ephraim had said, Of what worth are you, you Gileadites? you who dwell in the midst of Ephraim. So remember, they had the two sections of Ephraim. And so we see that at this point, the rabbis point out that even those who were the pariah of society, the bottom of the barrel, the worst of the worst, 
they had so much stock in themselves and who they were that they put down Gideon, who had just brought about this big deliverance. So we see that this ego permeates the entire tribe. So the two sections of Ephraim are no longer one. They're no longer on the same page. They're actually, in, set, in a sense, at war with one another. So they would tell him to say, so, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish that verse there. That's my bad. So the men of Gilead cut off Ephraim from crossing over the Yarden, and whenever anyone from Ephraim tried to escape and, set, uh, escape and said, let me go across, the men of Gilead would ask him, are you from Ephraim? And if he said no, they would tell him to say, Shibboleth. Now, if he said Sibboleth, because he could not make his mouth pronounce it right, they took hold of him and killed him on the spot at the yard and crossing. At that time, 42,000 men of Ephraim died. That's bad. Civil war erupts. 42,000 men died that didn't need to die. This is a needless issue that's taking place here. But remember, we have a war of egos taking place. I do find it interesting that these men on the western side of Ephraim, because they're the ones who are attacked here by the Gileadites, they had such a high and mighty lofty opinion of themselves. And yet the simplest thing, pronouncing a shh, Instead of us, they couldn't do. You know, and that's often what pride does in, to us in our own lives, is we lift ourselves up and we say, I am the best thing since sliced bread. And then everybody else turns around and goes, yeah, but Chris, there's this little thing that you do that really isn't good. But I can't see that, and I don't care to address it because I'm that good. So I think it's interesting that Adonai points out that they couldn't pronounce shh. Something so simple. But yet they thought their opinion of themselves was worth more than anyone else. So we see in the end that Yiftak judged Israel for six years. Then Yiftak from Gilead died, and he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Pretty non-ceremonious ending. So then we have to sit and ask ourselves, what is the connection then with Jephthah, Ephraim, Yom Kippur, and us? Let's turn to Vayikra, or Leviticus chapter 16. It's found on page 128. And this whole chapter talks about the Yom Kippur offering. We're not going to read through it because I want to focus on a specific piece of the offering dealing with the two goats. The two goats. So we're going to actually start in verse 5. Now he, Aharon, is to take from the community of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. He is to take the two goats and place them before Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aharon is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Adonai and the other for Azazel. Pretty self-explanatory. Two goats, one's going to go to Adonai for an offering, the other one's going to be brought into the wilderness and eventually thrown off a cliff, but that one's going to be the scapegoat. So jumping down to verse 9, now Aharon is to present the goat whose lot fell to Adonai, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat whose lot fell to Azazel is to be presented alive to Adonai, to be used for making atonement over it by sending it away into the desert for Azazel. Just going to take that goat away. Verse 20 picks up, when he has finished atoning for the holy place, 
the tent of meeting and the altar via the goat that's offered. He is to present the live goat. Aharon is to lay both hands on his head, on the head of the live goat, and confess over all the transgressions, crimes, and sins of the people of Israel. He is to put them on the head of the goat and then send it away into the desert with a man appointed for the purpose. The goat will bear all the transgressions away to some isolated place, and he is to let the goat go in the desert. So it's interesting here. So the part of laying the sins of the people on the goat, uh, this will actually take us back to, I think it was last time we were together, and we talked about the toll dot worm, the, the crimson blood worm. So they'd use that blood, that blood worm to dye rope. And we talked about how Yeshua is our toll dot. He is, he is that blood offering for us to take care of our sins. They would use the, the, the dye produced from this bug to uh, dye yarn. And they'd take that yarn and they'd wrap it around the horns of both of the goats. And they'd take the one out into the wilderness and they'd throw it down off a cliff. And when it was dead, the one back in Jerusalem miraculously turned white. And they knew, hey, our sins have been taken away. It's been taken care of. This day of Yom Kippur is complete. What's interesting is that same yarn that's rolled up, that's dyed from that told oat worm. In the Hebrew, it is called tongues of fire. And I'll let you make that connection there on your own. You see how it all connects? It's so cool. So we see that a separating of the scapegoat from the regular goat or the goat for the sin offering is used for atonement. We see the same sentiment actually expressed in the book of Tehillim or Psalms, chapter 103, verses 6 through 12. And it says this, Adonai brings vindication and justice to all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to Moshe, his mighty deeds to the people of Israel. Adonai is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in grace. He will not always accuse. He will keep his, excuse me, he will not keep his anger forever. He has not treated us as our sins deserved or paid us back for our offenses because his mercy toward those who fear him is as far above the earth as heaven. He has removed our sins from as far as the east is from the west. So we see that picture there with those two goats. One goat stays in Jerusalem. The other one's brought far away and taken care of. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Because we've all fallen short of the glory and the righteousness of our Creator. And we all need an atonement to be made. So then as we are in this time of the days of all, right in the middle, the days of repentance, what do we do about it? How do we go about What are the steps that we need to do to make teshuva? The steps that we need to do to be written in God's book of life for another year. First thing we need to do is to acknowledge that the events of the past happened. We're not allowed to gaslight ourselves. That means we can't convict, we're not allowed as believers to convince ourselves that the sin never happened or that it's not as bad as we thought it was. My choice has led to, these are some of the thoughts we should have, my choice has led to, my choice has hurt, 
My choices prevented A, B, C, or D from happening. My choices caused. It's interesting within our society, our society is so me-focused until it comes to the idea of sin. Then I'm totally all about myself when I'm committing this sin, but then when it comes to repenting, I don't want, it's not my fault. It's so-and-so's fault. It's the TV's fault. If somebody hadn't put that bottle of liquor on the counter, I wouldn't have drank it all in one shot. It's always somebody else's fault. And Adam and I would say, no, 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 we need to flip the script here. I need it to go the opposite way. I need you to think about yourself as you're coming into these days of repentance. What have you messed up with in life? What have you done wrong? How has it harmed other people? Once you've done that, you can accept that you can't change the past. It's happened, it's done, it's over with, it's written. It's not going to change. There's no, there's no magic time machine or do-over button. It has happened. We have to accept that. Dwelling on it will not change it if we continue to dwell and think on and think on it. What if I did this? And what if I did that? And I can't believe they did this. It doesn't change it at all. It's still going to be there. It's still done. It's at this point, though, when we start to think about it, that guilt starts to kick in. Guilt is good. Don't let everybody tell you guilt is bad. Don't feel guilty. No, 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 no. Feel guilty. Because guilt is good. The very definition of guilt is the fact of having committed a specific or implied offense or crime. At the point of feeling guilt, you realize, we realize, I realize, I messed up. Something wrong happened. This is not good. But there are two types of guilt. Two types of guilt. So we got to be careful. The first is destructive. So destructive guilt often feeds our negative cycles of sinful behavior. Let me translate that a little easier for, for us all. <laughs> so if I were to come and I say, you know what, I feel so guilty that I don't know God's word well enough. But you know what? How could I? There's so much there, and I'm just not smart enough to know God's word. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek, so there's no way. That's destructive. I see that there's a problem, that I need to know God's word more, but I'm making excuses for not making it right. Whereas on the other hand, constructive guilt produces a stronger relationship with God, where I say, you know what? I wish I knew more about God's word. How can I know more about God's word? I can read. I can read. I can sacrifice some of my personal time every day to be with my maker to read from his Torah. I can attend the Hebrew school at Tree of Life with Miss Beth. There, there are things that we can do. We, we, guilt is what brings us to the point of making changes in our lives. And the idea is if we're going to be destructive and make excuses, or if we're going to be constructive and say, let's get this done. Let's go forward. Let's move. Let's, let's be a better person. So once you understand and you've started to gone through the guilt, there's the realization that you have to reconcile it within yourself first. So this is where it all becomes me-centered, okay? And that it's okay in this particular instance. So I have to reconcile this all within myself. It can't, it's not going to change. It's already happened. I feel guilty for it. How am I going to work on this? What do I need to do? What are the steps that I need to do now? What's the restoration or restu restitution that I need to do? How, how should I pray for this particular situation? Was it illegal what I did? Do I need to turn myself in? 
Do I need to pay a fine? I got pulled over for speeding. I broke the law. I got to pay a fine. I can complain about it, but I need to repent and just pay the fine because I messed up. In other words, to the best of, the, our, of our ability, we need to make it right. Sometimes we can't. That's the bummer part. Sometimes we hurt somebody or we cause such pain that there is no making it right. Or the person is so hurt that they refuse to speak to you once again. That's where prayer comes in. You might not be able to talk to that person again, but remember, it's, a, it's all about you within, when it comes to teshuva. It's, it's got to be made right in our heart because then we can take steps toward making the future better and helping the world around us. But we got to deal with this first before we can go out and help the world. So then within that, we get to the definition of teshuva. And you know, Mike did a beautiful job last week explaining teshuva, you know, driving to work, you missed your exit and you're late for work and you call your boss, you said, I'm late, but you know, I'm turning around right now. That's teshuva, turning around, making it right. So what's cool is when we look at the Ramban, he actually explains it really nicely, and I really like it. He says, what is repentance? The sinner shall cease from sinning and remove sin from his thoughts and wholeheartedly conclude not to revert back to it. Even as it is said, let the wicked forsake his way. So too shall he be remorseful on what was past. Even as it is said, surely after that I was turned and I repented. In addition, the knower of all secrets will testify about him that forever he will not turn to repeat that sin again. According to what it is said, say unto him, neither will he recall any more of the work of our hands, our gods. It is moreover essential that his confession shall be by spoken word of his lips, and all that which he concluded in his heart shall be formed in speech. And that's from the Rambam. So teshuva, according to Ramban, is that we have regret, guilt. We have confession to God that we've messed up. And then we leave that sin and we commit to not do it again. You know, it is hard within our society because it seems like everyone wants to call everyone a hypocrite. And rightfully so, because we all absolutely are hypocrites. We all mess up in our own ways. But Adonai says, hey, Making teshuva, making it right. The last part, the last step in teshuva is just try. Make that step towards God. Did you fall down again? Wow, that's a bummer. Step back up. Start walking again. Make that turn. There are some sins that have been ingrained in us since we were little. It takes time. Outside of a miracle from Hashem, sometimes it takes time. I know people who have done things cold turkey. That's awesome. But I can speak for myself and as well as that same person that, hey, you know, but there's other sins that I struggle with. Man, it seems like a constant battle. We even see that with Rav Shaul, and he said, I got a thorn in my flesh. You know, there's this issue that continues to bother me. But yeah, I get up every day, and I walk toward Adonai, and I turn more toward him every single day. Every single day. So we're almost at the end. We're going to close here. We're almost at the end of the days of repentance, the days of all. Yom Kippur is just around the corner. Saturday or Tuesday night, we have our Kol Nidre service, and then Wednesday, we have our Yom Kippur service and liturgy service. It's going to be a great time. It's not done yet. You have time. We have time. If you haven't taken the days of all seriously yet, that's fine. Do it today. 
make that step. But the thing is, is that when it comes to repentance and making teshuva and doing what's right in the world, we need to remember that we constantly need to do what's right and not what's easy. It's easy just to not do anything. It's hard to do what's right. But that's what makes us different from the rest of the world, and that's what we're being called to do, is to be a light to the nations. Shabbat Shalom.